Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, the, the series of programs that we have been dealing with recently uh, concentrate on a couple of issues that seem to be fairly exciting and uh, sort of come to mind when when most people think about archaeology. And one of them, of course, is the question that we discussed before about creationism and science and human evolution. And uh, we've discussed that to some degree. We'll be pursuing it a little bit more as we start to look at the uh, scientific background to hominid evolution or the emergence of early people. And as I've said before, we're getting so much information about this in the past few years that it's becoming really very overwhelming. And it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where not only is that evidence very compelling, but it's, it's so compelling that we can't even get command of all the, uh, demonstrations of human evolution and, uh, the broader question of evolutionary adaptations as, as we move on. But that is certainly one of the items that that's, comes up when you talk about the applications of archaeology to real-world issues. The other one, of course, is religion, and which clearly overlaps with the creationism evolution story, but, but religion in a more direct sense, trying to link up archaeological findings with biblical records, with literary accounts, and how extensively can we make that association, as, as we've discussed again on several episodes. That, too, is a very, very intriguing question and one that eventually boils down to as far as I'm concerned and I think as far as many of the scientific community uh, uh, seem to converge on is the fact of whether or not you believe in faith and if faith is a critical issue in in your moral compass and if it is then of course even scientific evidence may uh, take a back seat to faith and and there's certainly nothing wrong with that and I don't want to patronize or or discuss that in any great detail with with a negative attitude because I've seen just too many people involved in science who simply have faith and and if it makes their lives easier and if if it makes them come to grips with the realities and the difficulties of day-to-day life that's a wonderful thing I just wish I had it myself but the fact of the matter is that we can certainly discuss these issues with a tremendous amount of conviction and by the same token we can be open to other influences and I think in most cases we can reach compromises and at least agree to disagree if if that's that's where the positions sort of diverge. One of the issues however that is a little more subtle and one of the issues that we don't really deal with a lot in in, in even in the textbooks and in, in, in professional archaeological uh, venues and, and graduate school and, and the entire uh, educational trajectory is a question of politics in archaeology. Uh, politics is a very significant component um, of archaeological uh, 
um, application, if you will, because politics really seem, doesn't seem to ever go away from any kind of a professional venue. And I think that in this program, I want to talk to to you about some of the uh, sort of the mundane as well as the more spectacular issues in which politics and archaeology seem to have found a common ground and uh, the ways in which archaeology is often mobilized in the political arena to convey a variety of different types of points and to make some issues stand out and ultimately to make one side stand out above the other, if you will. It's it's like that in religion and, and science as well, as we've talked about. But politics a little more subtle in some cases, a little more uh, forceful in others. And I, I think uh, I want to segue into this by talking about what we had discussed with, with Dr. Joe Watkins a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the increased role of Native Americans in the North, uh, North American archaeological scene. One of the points that we made, and I think one that is extremely valid, whether or not you're a religious person or not, is to what degree do we simply have to respect religious views from all perspectives. And the scientific community uh, was initially up in arms when there was a strong movement afoot that began in the 1970s but really sort of reached legal status in the 1990s, uh, which, de- which uh, dealt with the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, or what's called NACPRA, where it was basically agreed upon by force of law that uh, the willy-nilly excavation of uh, Native American burials uh, simply couldn't continue um, without involving Native Americans in the consultation process. And a lot of scientists were upset about that uh, when some of the positions said, basically, uh, please honor our dead on the Native American side, please respect them, and don't necessarily look at them um, as simply artifacts of science. Uh, these are corporeal um, burials. They have relevance to us from a religious and, and traditional and a spiritual perspective. And please honor them much in the way that you honor your own dead. So uh, this, was a, this was a perspective that in many case, cases uh, sort of brought up a a very interesting position on the part of, of Western and largely white American scientists because it called attention to the fact that if we're going to talk about egalitarian perspectives in dealing with uh, with burials and honoring the dead and uh, respecting the uh, religious values and perspectives of any ethnic group, then this was a perfectly valid assumption. I mean, do we go ahead and excavate uh, white cemeteries? No, we really don't do that. Uh, Now, you can argue from a variety of perspectives, oh, we know so much about white people in terms of their pathologies and and in terms of their... the history of diseases and sicknesses, that information that would come about if we looked at this material in, in any great detail, um, and we've done this in the past, that uh, this is almost a moot point, but the fact of the matter is that when 
the Native American community comes out and says, well, please respect our dead in the same way that you respect your own, we have to sort of step back and think about that. Now, whether or not your scientific sensibilities are going to be offended by that, that's a separate issue and one that's certainly very valid and one that I would certainly subscribe to in most cases. But the fact of the matter is that this is not a cut and dry situation. The fact is that Native American burials have been studied uh, certainly for prehistoric populations. How much is enough is another question, but certainly the introduction of Native Americans into the process is a critical issue. And then, of course, that became a political football in, in, the, uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, when the war, uh, law was passed. And I think we've reached certain accommodations to that. We discussed that in the previous program, but uh, and, and, and I don't want to go over that in any great detail because we discussed it at that point. But the fact of the matter is it, is, it just sort of raised the subtle connection between politics and, uh, and in this case, religion and archaeology and, and how those aspects of uh, life that itself sort of converged and we have to sort of analyze these perspectives uh, once we get into these questions and try to obtain certain type of resolution to the satisfaction of all the parties and stakeholders and people who are involved in these things. So uh, turning to the politics itself, there are some very, very mundane day-to-day types of political issues that one comes across in archaeology uh, from the perspective, certainly from the North American perspective, and and, uh, in in situations where simple compliance, and we've talked about this law-mandated, if you will, excavations occur. Now, very often, because the process, and we've talked about the process as well, the Section 106 process, and the environmental protection statutes that mandate archaeology because they are, right now, they have been codified, certainly, but in the past, it's been very difficult to really get the archaeological regulatory component wrapped into the broader compliance packages that most uh, development agencies have to deal with. And, and I think at this point we're at, we're, we've, we've reached a stage where, yes, most developing interests realize that they have to go through the archaeological process. But up until very, very recently, while they understood that you had to do pollution studies, while they understood that you had to t- undertake contamination studies when you develop a pr- piece of property or a highway or a pipeline or whatever else you're going to put into the ground, in, in the case of North America, Archaeology just was very often swept under the rug. It became this headache whose uh, whose uh, ramifications were not eminently clear to most developers. I don't know if it was a subconscious issues. I mean, the laws have been on the books. It's not really open to too much debate in terms of the necessity of which laws you have to follow under what circumstances. But for a variety of reasons, because it is not considered to be as hard a science or, or to have as a direct an influence 
on on uh, on the environment as say pollution and contamination and uh, water situations and even transportation overflows that that clearly affect uh, any kind of a development operation. Archaeology just sort of seemed to move to the side, if you will, and because of that, it was swept under the rug. And as a result of that, as a result of that, a variety of different circumstances arose where it became came and unfortunately it became sort of the last item on the compliance totem pole if you will uh, and that meant basically that you the developer or the project manager for whatever interest was being developed said well maybe it'll go away maybe it'll go away because uh, it, it's not something that I can really wrap my head uh, head around maybe we just don't have to deal with it well in 90% of the cases it didn't go away and what emerged was that the long and the short of it was that the archaeology part of the project was the the last impediment in the way of development. That's not how the process is supposed to go, and that's changing very rapidly and has changed. But the political element of this thing became pretty important when that kind of mentality was was ongoing. One of the situations that that result from that is that because you're the last item on the totem, totem pole, you're also the last hope in many cases of uh, stakeholders who are, in many cases, again, fighting the development project itself. And what they tend to do is as the clock is running out on any kind of stakeholder to actually um, upset the process and to impede the development of whatever project it is, again, whether it's a building construction or a pipeline or a highway, they will latch on to the last component in the environmental process, in this case, in the compliance process, the archaeology, and say, you are our last hope, please get us out of this mess. And based on that, archaeology had been cast in a variety of unpleasant situations where uh, they sort of got stuck between um, the developer and uh, the stakeholder who objected to the purpose of the project, and they were cast in this very unusual role. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how these situations are manifest right after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McClune will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. 
The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein back. And um, we are talking about the role of politics and how, uh, <coughs> excuse me, how politics gets enmeshed in archaeology. And in this case uh, that I've been talking about, how it uh, becomes sort of a, a critical last man standing scenario uh, for the Section 106 process that requires archaeology to be done in advance of development, and as I said before, uh, for a variety of reasons, archaeology is very often the last uh, component of the environmental or cultural compliance process that is performed in, in part because, uh, again, for a number of reasons, developing interests think that it, it's going to go away. Now, that has changed dramatically in the past five or ten years, but uh, nevertheless, it, it's in some circles still an issue. And uh, long story short, the archaeologist is also often held hostage <coughs> by both developing in, development interests who blame them for being the last, the last piece in the puzzle, in part because they didn't factor advanced planning for archaeology in the process to begin with, and conversely also by the, by the objectors or the interveners, if you will, <coughs> to a compliance process, to a project rather, who will say, well, you know, you do the archaeology, uh, the archaeology can prevent the project from going forward if it's significant, and the fact of the matter is that that's very far from the truth. The archaeology never really should prevent a project from going through. What it will do is if it's not planned for in advance, then it can delay the process. And the onus of that will largely fall on the developer who, as I said before, tried to conveniently sweep the archaeology under the rug and decided for whatever reason that he could get away with not doing it. Now, if that happens, uh, it's very convenient for him, <coughs> excuse me, as, as a as a point of defense to say, well, the archaeology is holding everything up. And the fact of the matter is that lack of planning is what held everything up. Well, we were involved in a project like that, 
um, and and I'd like to narrate uh, sort of a summary of of what happened here in a situation uh, in a very small town along the Delaware Valley that was the location of a very hotly contested construction of a nuclear power plant. And this was back in the 1980s when uh, people were still feeling the fallout, uh, and I mean this figuratively, of the Three Mile Island disaster. This was in Pennsylvania. Um, and so that particular state was very, very sensitive to construction of anything related to nuclear uh, power as a source for, for energy, and the construction of those power plants went through a very, very rigorous compliance process. It turned out that even though in this particular community, the community board decided to put the power plant through in this very small community, uh, there was a tremendous objection to having that power plant done. And um, the objectors and the interveners were actually a very, very powerful group as well. And what they what what they latched onto was the archaeology, because in this case, as I indicated earlier, the archaeology was the last piece of the puzzle that stood in the way of getting the ultimate permitting and the approvals for the project to go forward. And what happened was that. Um, the archaeology was, in fact, very significant and very interesting. And it involved the preservation and the, and, uh, the uh, discovery of an archaeological village, of a village, rather, of a late archaic village that was about, about three and a half, four thousand years old and was well preserved and reasonably well and very well documented over the course of time, in part because the uh, interveners in this case were able to mobilize a lot of attention to this village and to allow the ex and to push for the excavation to go forward uh, with uh, with the uh, the objective of, of recovering as much information as possible. And what happened here was that while the uh, the interveners uh, were very, very enthusiastic about this, they, I think, lost sight of the fact that by simply taking care of the archaeological excavation and completing it, in this case, do, doing an almost uh, 100% excavation of, of this village, which is uh, right now and, and even back then was unheard of in terms of doing what you, your due diligence for legal purposes, uh, they thought that that this site would somehow inhibit the project from going through. And what happened was that the uh, the people who were actually developing it um, developing the, uh, the nuclear power station, decided that they would go as far as they possibly could for getting actually the entire village excavated. And we were just uh, the actual part of the village that was on the footprint of the nuclear power plant was just the sort of, in this case, the northern end of it. And because of all the pressures, the excavation was allowed to go forward with a tremendous amount of recovery and nearly everything got taken out of the ground. The entire sequence was documented to everybody's satisfaction. And for, for, for the selfish interests of the interveners, they just said, but there's a site here. Can't that cause the project not to be built? And the answer was no. That in fact, the developing interests had gone out of their way to recover as much of this 
uh, site as they possibly could. We got a documentation and a history and a reconstruction of this prehistoric site that was unrivaled. And we recovered absolutely everything and basically said, look, our, our work is done. It was, it is done 80 ways to Tuesday. And now this area really can be developed. And there was a tremendous amount of conflict and, uh, a lot of politicians, and at that time, some very famous uh, protest politicians, including uh, Abby Hoffman, who was a very familiar uh, protester at the time and, and, and was involved in the Chicago 7 trials in the 1960s. He was one of the people who was very involved in this. And as the archaeologists who had done the work, I, I had basically stated in front of a public meeting and identified and specified the reasons that this site was no longer standing in the way of the development interest, that the site had been completely excavated, that we we uh, extracted as much information as we possibly could from this site. It was ready to go. And uh, there was a disbelief on the part of the interveners. They said, that can't be true. Well, it was true. Uh, we, we really did get everything out of the ground. Uh, eventually, this project resolved itself in a very positive sense. It turned out that that uh, this foot the, the the project did not completely die. The uh, the, the uh, nuclear plant was eventually built because there seemed to be a compromise reached between the stakeholders, uh, the interveners, and the developers, and it, it worked out quite well. But but. This was a political football for well over two years, and it resulted in a uh, very, very controversial scenario that is not very uncommon in uh, North American archaeology because, uh, again, there is an underlying concept that uh, that archaeology actually impedes um, can impede and, and prevent uh, construction of most development projects. That's not true. Um, if the, the law identifies a critical path that allows you to undertake your work and to make sure that uh, this is um, a process that is effectively cooperative between all the parties involved, that um, once the accommodation is made to either avoid the property or to take it out, if it can't be avoided, then uh, this situation really has to get resolved without uh, – can get resolved without a tremendous amount of acrimony and conflict. And in most cases that happens, uh, looking back over 20 years ago, it was a little more difficult, as I said, because there was uh, a sort of a perspective on the part of some old-line developers who, said, who, were, who were certainly, certainly not uh, attuned to the need for environmental compliance, and they just sort of felt that the what they needed to do really was to just bury it or destroy it, just bowl through because development trumped all. And of course, that perspective, as we progress and as we understand the need for uh, environmental mitigation measures, that mentality has largely uh, gone away. And that part of the political element of of doing archaeology is starting to fade. Uh, I won't say it's totally gone. It certainly is not. Um, 
we still have situations, especially in the private sector, where uh, development interests, again, try to uh, push this under the table, in part because municipal rules can sometimes trump federal rules if, if there are areas of, of, of overlap that, uh, that jurisdictions are not uh, – are not completely understood, and uh, certainly the developer himself wants to look in the uh, into the direction of uh, speeding up the development as much as possible and um, trying to avoid the situation of having to comply to the environmental guidelines, especially especially if they have not planned for doing this in the first place because once the planning is done up front and in advance then 95 times out of 100 perhaps more there is no conflict and we're finding especially in this area in new york where i'm i do a fair amount of work that the planning is very very good recently um that they're not trying to pull any fast ones if you if you want to call it that anymore because simply not worth it and the political aspect of that particular situation is tending to diminish and we're able to go through our, our our process and not be held hostage by political issues um as much as we had in the past so i think that's a very positive development and something that that we can look forward to as uh, being part of the protocols now rather than as being part of the object, uh, exceptions to the rule. And I think that's a very positive development. However, um, on the international scale and on larger, in terms of larger developmental interests, this be, remains a very, very major situation. And I will give you a couple of examples of, of politics and agendas and archaeology when we come back after these messages. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Women make up more than half of the country's workforce. Companies that have women on the board generally set the pace and outperform other companies in the same industries. So why aren't we using the power of voice and choice to move ahead? Tune in to The Awe Factor, Advancing Women Everywhere, with host Carol Cicino. You'll hear from the business and thought leaders that took chances and made a difference. Listen as they share their stories with Carol every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Taramino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back uh, discussing uh, the nexus, if you will, of archaeology and politics, and it has a long international tradition as well. We were talking earlier about some very mundane and nevertheless significant um, political ramifications to the classic compliance archaeology that's done in North America and, and, and how that works in a variety of different scenarios. But I want to expand that perspective internationally. And if you look at the history of archaeology uh, from the broader perspective and how it evolved as a, as a profession, you can't escape looking at the fact and accepting the fact that archaeology ultimately was a profession that was developed by, um, for lack of a, of, of a more subtle uh, set of, of terms, by colonialists. I mean, people who were conquered the world, uh, Western European people who conquered the world, as it were, and the... Uh, in the uh, 15, subsequent to the 1500s and uh, on a large scale and certainly before that, if we uh, go back to our school lessons about the early explorers and essentially the overriding of indigenous populations by, uh, by Europeans. Um, and archaeology is really a function of Europeans going into a variety of countries and locations, very often third world places, and essentially discovering the treasures of those ancient cultures from those countries and uh, taking the wares, as it were, and bringing them back to Western civilization and sticking them in museums and um, effectively uh, demonstrating the uh, the pathway of cultural evolution, which uh, I certainly wouldn't want to denigrate and, and put down for any reason, but that information was basically taken out of countries of origin and transported to the so-called developed world where the artifacts and the finds, uh, be they... Egyptian mummies or Mesoamerican finds or uh, 
great porcelains and and uh, and 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 uh, handiwork from the Ming dynasties of China, and they were brought to the Western world and put in museums, curated, and were visible to people living in those countries to appreciate and to digest their significance. And as a result of that, um, there was a huge antiquities trade that emerged, and we were not talking about that here. But this is so obviously still a political situation that now is trying to be is is uh, on the on the verge of being rectified in many countries. So that I can remember that when I began doing this kind of work, it was still not uncommon for archaeologists working in places like Egypt or Mesoamerica or China or Mesopotamia and Iraq to um, to actually bring some of those artifacts back to their local museums and that was the end of it well once uh, those countries, the host countries which house the archaeological treasures, once they started to develop their own programs for archaeology and for preservation and for cultural heritage management, that began to change and the laws, international laws, um, were in- implemented that would accommodate uh, Western excavations accompanied by uh, additional excavations and supplemented by excavations by indigenous populations with the understanding that some of the scientific work would be performed in the in the western countries and the artifacts would certainly stay in the repositories of the host country and that has become de rigueur right now and it is becoming a matter of common policy there was uh, an article about a year and a half ago about repatriation not so much in terms of, of human remains but certainly in terms of classically hoarded if you will um artifacts from some of these uh archaeologically rich countries in this case uh, the most the most the, the most recent major issue involved the return of artifacts uh from the Machu Picchu civilization in Peru by um the archaeologists from Yale University at the, who undertook these excavations in the early part of the 20th century and agreements were reached between the governments of Peru and uh, Yale University to develop an exchange program for archaeological investigations and to repatriate or return the troves of artifacts from Machu Picchu and related locations in Peru to the host country. These are complex arrangements. Uh, I think in most cases they do have additional ramifications, but they do get settled. And here again you see the politics of colonialism at work and how we're trying to rectify that in the 21st century um, and, and this, obviously, to anybody who has an appreciation of how much patrimony, how significant patrimony is, this is obviously uh, a means for compensating and um, making right a situation that was clearly wrong from the outset. Of course, we have to look at it in the context of its time. So that's certainly one of the clearest examples of the politics of archaeology and how it, it, it certainly has changed. Antiquities trading is now taboo, even though it still goes on. 
uh, in some of the great museums of the world, I might add. It still goes on. There are auctions, all those auctions at some of the, the, the major houses that do this sort of things. I won't mention them. But basically, they are dealing with um, hoarded loot that was taken from country, host countries. And that practice, hopefully, is going to die out within our lifetime. Now then, there are still very major issues of politics and archaeology, and I'll give you one that I was involved in um, recently, uh, not so recently actually, about seven or eight years ago when the uh, Iraq war was going on. Um, one of the projects that our team was involved in was the mass grave excavations um, associated with the Kurdish slaughter by Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. And uh, this was undertaken, a project that was undertaken by the U.S. government, in part, and I won't get into all the political ramifications of this, because uh, whatever your position is or has been or was with respect to the Iraq war, um, one of the elements of the U.S. effort and one of the elements that was spearheaded by an archaeological group from the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was an effort to actually uncover the mass graves that were laid, that were um, prepared by Saddam Hussein when he uh, slaughtered the Kurdish. Uh, refugees and the Kurdish population in northern in northern Iraq, and actually he had them transported down to southern Iraq, where they were shot and buried in a series of mass graves. And our group was involved in that excavation, which ultimately led to one of the Saddam Hussein trials and his conviction, as we all know, which happened uh, before uh, before and actually after he was hanged, and. That was clearly uh, a situation which had very, very significant and, in many cases, subtle political overtones. Whatever one might have thought of the United States' effort in uh, bringing down the Saddam Hussein regime, there is nevertheless the inescapable evidence of mass murder that was undertaken by that regime under certain circumstances of brutality that really rivals some of the greatest crimes against humanity. Now, the circumstances clearly were muddled. Should, should the U.S. have gone to war? Should they not have? Um, was, was the uh, recruitment of folks like us to undertake the mass graves excavation and to undertake the entire process of bringing Saddam Hussein to trial, was that politically motivated? Again, I don't think there's any question that it was. Is it a black and white situation? Clearly not. There's a lot of gray involved. But at the same point, it's archaeology, in this case forensic archaeology, that clearly was caught in this tussle of a political blurriness of a political situation that one can argue for and against. I think we were convinced that in the long run uh, it was necessary to do this work because mass murder is mass murder. Um, the politics, again, have been argued left and right 
specific, appropriately classified. And in many, very many circles, uh, we felt fairly comfortable that we had done the right thing by it. But nevertheless, this was a situation that was very politically tinged, very politically charged, and a situation that will come up increasingly as archaeologists bring their skills to areas of conflict. Because when you're in an area of conflict, you are taking a side in some way, shape, or form. You are trying to justify it under the guise of humanitarian work. I think this was humanitarian work any way you cut it. On the other hand, in the grander picture, in the grander picture, there are political overtones here. And so this is a case in which archaeology will, I think, increasingly, if you want to say it, impose itself or intrude itself into a political reality because the techniques and the methods and the objectives of what archaeology can do has expanded tremendously because of advances in science and it will inevitably get involved in a political morass. And I will talk about a couple of other situations in which archaeology is getting involved in as well when we return after these messages. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back uh, discussing the interface, if you will, between archaeology and politics. And it's a, an interface that's not often 
discussed or even recognized even in professional circles. Although I guess uh, some of the examples I've posed here indicate that there is no way that you can really avoid having some kind of a political overtone to archaeological work, especially in this day and age where archaeology is really sort of becoming in many ways a cutting-edge science and as such it's used for various situations where you're effectively trying to establish cultural identities by doing your archaeological work the inevitability of that overlap with politics becomes huge i mean it's 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 simply a dint of the fact that your recovery techniques and your ability to demonstrate that uh, that that uh, a certain culture is associated with uh, a certain type of behavior or that your ability to recognize that uh, that war and conflict um, can can be documented by uh, extreme by by recovery of archaeological remains, including mass graves and including uh, destroyed houses and populations and uh, demo, paleo, what what's known as demographic studies of uh, of burials and, and of ancient populations. When that kind of study comes into the fore, then uh, it's very clear that it exposes elements of conflict and political power and shifting of political power during time that is dramatically underscored by the finds and by the discoveries that archaeological methods bring to the table. And so as a result of that, um, archaeology, for better or worse, is part of the political process. And I think nowhere has that example been as readily discussed and examined as in the case of the Afghanistan war, where if you recall in March of 2001, the uh, Buddhas at the site of Bamiyan were in, in, Af in central Afghanistan were bombed by the Taliban. And these Buddhas were bombed by the Taliban because that was a cultural component and a cultural symbol that the Taliban simply did not want to endure because they felt that their stock was rising in that country, that they wanted to reassert their hegemony over the population, and clearly the Buddhas had to go. And once that happened, that brought in the impetus for the international conflicts and the uh, U.S. presence and the NATO presence and the struggles and the inevitability, inevitability of huge multifaceted conflict that eventually emerged in that country. And it was initiated by um, the bombing and the destruction of the Buddhas by the Taliban. Whether or not it was the entire reason, that's a whole other question. But whether, but it, it, it was clearly the spark that lit the, lit the fire. And as a result of that, um, there is, of course, a clear political message that is, is being advertised and being struggled over by the uh, citizens of that part of the world. Right now, um, there is a huge effort that is being directed at restoring, recovering, and preserving some of the major monuments in Afghanistan as we hope 
that country reaches a peaceful solution and a peaceful resolution to the internecine warfare and conflict that's going on there. But one of the elements that uh, much of the international community is coming to grips with and trying to address is the restoration of the cultural patrimony of Afghanistan. And that would involve the restoration of these enormous uh, vestiges of that culture, some of which are the historic Buddhas, uh, second century uh, AD Buddhas that were um, constructed and were associated with monasteries in that part of, of Central and Southern Asia during that particular point in time and the restoration of those monuments, which are incredibly impressive, the artwork, the statuary, the construction and the distribution of these magnificent monuments are, are breathtaking. And uh, I think we've come to the point where we realize that one of the contributions that can be made to restoring that culture's heritage in, in, in the middle right now of, of development of, of the mining industry, I might add, is to make sure that the patrimony remains. Now, clearly, uh, there are elements of the population and elements of, of uh, religious elements and, and, and cultural elements that don't want to see that happen. So that, again, archaeology, cultural heritage preservation are all part of the dynamic associated with uh, with uh, with conflict and warring interests in many third world countries, and I think it's it's important that we understand that archaeology is not an objective science. It's always going to be caught in the middle of some form of conflict, and as our methods and strategies and scientific approaches to performing uh, excavation, recovery, and restoration, as these um, techniques develop. It's going to get worse in some ways because the the potential that one has for recovering and 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 preserving and restoring um, these monuments is is going to have some obviously dominantly uh, positive I would hope uh, repercussions for much of the populations in some of these uh, ethnically uh, riven countries, but by the same token, they also motivate the other side or other sides to try and gain the upper hand by destroying in some cases. And I think if we should obviously go back to the the, uh, the universal solution, I think, and I hope it still remains this, which is education and acceptance and um, the need for people to understand each other and to understand cultural interaction and to, to come to grips with the fact that cultures come and cultures go, but people have to live together. And I think archaeology can be used as a, as a, a tool to facilitate understanding and cultural understanding as well as it can uh, to be used as sort of a pawn between power brokers who are dedicated toward conflict. And I think we have to uh, not simply say, well, we won't do archaeology because it can only re uh, it can only lead to more conflict. I think we have to promote the message of education to advocate for cultural interchange and cultural tolerance. And uh, as we do that, I think archaeology will only benefit and that archaeology can in turn, in sort of a, a feedback loop, a benefit peoples and benefit understanding through education 
and and through understanding of contemporary and ancient culture and allow people to interact and to learn from one another that cooperative work in in a variety of different domains is really what will solve the world's problem and, and I'm hopeful that an understanding of cultural heritage and uh, an understanding of the need to maintain that heritage is going to promote that message. Now, as we see, that is a rocky road very often. But I think we need to remain hopeful. Science advances, and uh, hopefully with those advances, understanding will be enhanced as well. <clears throat> so I would leave you with that message that uh, while politics is invariably wedded to archaeology, and we have to understand it, especially if we look at archaeology in historic context, as much as prehistoric context, which is a whole other story, but that we understand that the message has to be for cultural interaction. Archaeology, certainly from uh, the North American perspective, is part of anthropology, and that means cultural understanding and tolerance. And so if we move in that direction, I think that we can secure the possibility that archaeology will be a positive tool for understanding and tolerance. And as we move along and go forward, uh, we should be able to understand that appreciation of cultural interaction and cultural enhancement is a, is a possible benefit and one that archaeology can feed into as positively as it, it could have and has often been used as a, a propaganda tool for many, many people and for many, many cultures. I think we can move it in a positive direction if we stress the need for cultural interaction and tolerance. So on that note, uh, I would thank you for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. Uh, we'll be discussing some other elements of the archaeological record, and I won't give it away now, but keep your eyes peeled and pay attention, and we will see you next time. Thank you. This is Joe Shulden Ryan. Good evening. again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.